morning. And God, we can't help but praise you for how great you truly are. And yet, Lord, I fear that so many times we may sing this on Sunday morning and we believe it in our hearts and yet we go through our lives at times and we don't truly embrace what it means for you to be the great God in our lives. And I pray today as we continue to go to the book of Colossians, Lord, that you would continue to show us our ways, continue to show us the way we need to follow you, and Lord, how we can center our life around Christ and Christ alone. I pray for that this morning, and I thank you that we're here together. I pray that as we continue to worship you through reading and discussing your word, Lord, that you would be the one to change people, you would be the one to inspire, you would be the one to rebuke, whatever is needed today, Lord, that you would speak. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> All right. Well, as I said, as I prayed, we're going to be back in the book of Colossians uh, two weeks in a row, I know. And uh, believe it or not, uh, we are only... I think, two, two sermons away from being through Colossians and we can move on, but uh, um, I do have a promise I'm going to make this morning. I was asked if I would be long or short today, and I, there was a rumor, there was a rumor that was going around that I spoke for an hour last week. I got to say that actually is not true. I spoke for 58 minutes, so, um, so let's not be spreading any false rumors around, all right, so... Um, Let's get things straight, Uh, but no, in all seriousness today as we come to Colossians and we have an opportunity to be with one another and to commune with one another over the Lord's table, um, it's it's interesting as we've looked through the book of Colossians how well any time, doesn't matter what passage in Colossians we'd be in, but the time to celebrate communion with one another will fit right in always with the book of Colossians. And so today we're going to break some things down. It's only a few verses we're going to be looking at this morning And that should give us plenty of time to not only study God's word through the book of Colossians, but also take the time that is needed and the sufficient time to remember Christ's death, to remember what that means for us, and to commune with one another again uh, as we go to the table. Uh, We are going to continue through Colossians, and we are finding ourselves almost at the end of the book. We are here in chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be starting in verse 2. This morning, we're only going to be talking about verses 2 through verses 6. So it's a fairly small portion of Scripture, and uh, we're going to see then, once again, how this passage of Scripture relates not only to what it says, but also relates to the whole context of the book of Colossians. So, as you guys know, if you've been following along with us, if you've been going through the book of Colossians with us, the book of Colossians, the main theme, the central theme that you see throughout the book is very simple, and that is that Christ is superior over all else, and as a superior one, then he needs to be the center of our lives. To really back it, to put it into just a few words, the book of Colossians is about centering our lives around the person of Jesus Christ. And that he, as the superior one, is worthy of us giving all our devotion to. That we don't need to add anything to our faith. That no amount of rule following, no amount of spiritualization, no amount of all these different things that we try so, to so desperately have maturity in Christ matter. What matters is Jesus. 
And we came to Colossians 3.17. And uh, I said last week, and I'll say this again, I think this verse, in Colossians 3, verse 17, I believe uh, is the central verse of the book. Not specifically like if you looked at it, like there's, it's, not, it's, it's not right in the center of the book itself. But the idea... The main theme is seen here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And I want to read that again. Colossians 3, 17 says this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I see this as the central verse of all of Colossians, and this is what it says, Everything we do must be done in the name of Christ. Everything we do, and really the name of Christ, the idea is, is that everything we do flows out from him. In essence, he is the center. He is the center of our lives, and that is what Colossians 3.17 is telling us. That it doesn't matter what we do, what we say, how we live in our relationships, whatever it is, it all needs to be centered around Jesus Christ. And that if any time we find ourselves veering off of that center and centering our lives on something else, then we are severely misunderstanding who Jesus truly is. That he is superior over all else and there is nothing that compares to him. So I'm going to go back to chapter 3 for a little bit. And what we've been looking at through the book of chapter, or chapter 3 of this book, uh, is that our new centered, our new Jesus-centered life is being seen through our relationships. In chapter 3, first of all, in verses 1 through 11, we see that our relationship with Christ has been changed as Christ has made us a new person, as he is the center of our lives, our relationship with him changes, and that is that we have changed our identity. Our identity has been changed from one of finding identity in ourselves and who we are, and instead now we're finding identity in whose we are, that we belong to Christ, and that is our identity, and that relationship changes. And our relationship then not only changes with Christ himself, but what we've seen through chapter 3 is that our relationship will change with those around us. Our relationship will change with specifically the church that is around us. As we looked at verses 12 through 17, we looked at several ideas of what it looks like to live the Christian life, what it looks like to live out our identity in Christ amongst one another, and how love and how selflessness need to prevail in our relationships that once we only cared about ourselves, but and part, as part of Christ's new team, we love one another and we are selfless and we look for the good in one another. Then last week we came to chapter 3 uh, and we went 18 and then we went through 4-1. But the first thing we saw is our relationship with our family. Uh, our Christ-centered life that Christ has given us, that he's changed us into, we should that relationship with our family will be transformed by Jesus Christ. We looked at husbands and wives, we looked at kids and parents, and we looked at the idea that our lives need to be centered around Christ and not centered around family, that we need to center our lives around him and him alone, and that will transform the way that we are parents, that will transform the way we are children, it will transform the way we are husbands, and it will transform the ways we are wives, and that in all of those things we keep Christ's center, and that's what our new life should look like. And then finally, that second section we looked at last week pretty quickly was our relationships in our work. So in our relationships in our workplaces, when we are working for people, when we are either bosses or employees, and how we serve one another and how we serve in this world is important, and it needs to be centered around Christ. 
And so we've been looking at all of these different relationships through chapter 3. And now we come to chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 2. And as we get there, we're going to see that our new life that is centered in Christ will not only show up in the relationships that we have looked at so far, not only our relationship with Christ, not only our relationship with the church, not only our relationship with our family, and not only our relationship in our work, but we will also see that our new life will be seen in our relationship to those who are distant from us and those who are, as Paul would say here in a minute, on the outside. Those who aren't part of our church, those who we don't regularly have contact with, the relationships that seem more distant, those relationships are just as important to focus on Christ than all the other ones that we've looked at as well. And that's what we're going to look at. Before we get to Colossians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 through 6, uh, just want to get us thinking this idea of, of how important it is to go out. So some of you know this, and some of you have made mention of this, and I've been made fun of, and it's hurt my feelings deeply. Um, not really. But uh, a lot of you guys know that my wife and I are not outdoors people. Like some of you, like a day like today, all you can think about is, get me out of this building, I need to be outside. Uh, some of you are thinking, let's, let's run, let's go do something outside. Uh, a lot of you are hunters, you want to go outside, you want to wake up super early and go out and just sit out in the outdoors. Some of you love to fish, some of you love to do things that are outside. And you know what, you hate being indoors. And you know what, good for you. Uh, uh, that, that's good, that's good. Right? I, I'm not going to judge you for that if you don't judge me for the other side. But my wife and I were different, and I told her, I warned her ahead of time that we were gonna, I was going to talk about this. Uh, we love the comfort of our home, we always have. Uh, we haven't grown up in families in which the outdoors was a big thing. I didn't grow up hunting, uh, I didn't go fishing until actually I met Felicia's dad, and he took me out fishing, and I'll never go again, it was such a terrible experience. Um, we don't like just going out and hanging out. Some people I know like to like just go and like hang out outside. And like we've never done that. I don't know what it is, but for whatever reason, both my wife and I are both to the point where we would like to just, if a day like this comes, we'd like to just sit in the coolness of the house and enjoy a good day inside. And that's, that's, I don't know. So I'm sorry about that, I guess, but, um, but here's what happens now. So this is what my wife and I love, but then we have kids. All right. So our kids, are not like us. Um, and if you've had kids, you probably know this. If, if, it's, if it's over 32 degrees outside, and sometimes even under if there's enough snow, they want to be outside. So, like, it's, it's, can we go outside? Can we go outside? Can we go outside? It's like this incessant. It's all the time. And it's like they always want to be outside. It could be raining and muddy, and it could be the grossest day in the world, and yet they want to be outside. They want to be running around in the rain. They want to be doing stuff. So we have this constant battle in our house of uh, of parents who just want to stay inside and kids who just want to run and be free. Um, And I feel that we found some some compromise. Uh, Sometimes we stay in. Sometimes we go out. It kind of depends on their behavior. Sometimes it depends on our moods. Um, but what I'll say is this, as much as the idea to me of going outside sometimes bothers me and I'd rather stay in and I'd rather stay comfortable, my wife hates bugs, I hate snakes, we don't want to be out with those type of things, okay, we don't want to be out there, but I'll tell you what, when we listen to our kids, when we go outside and we have time where we can just even just sit there and watch our kids play outside, or take a walk, or go out and be outside. I don't remember really ever a time except for maybe one time where we caught, we went out to a park and we almost got caught in a tornado. But other than that, um, I have never regretted, regretted the idea that we went outside. Like I don't come back in and be like, that was awful. Actually quite the opposite. Usually 
It's enjoyable, especially if the weather's nice and you're able to go out and enjoy God's creation. You're able to enjoy, enjoy the sun, enjoy what's out there. And you know what? I come back in and I say, we should really do this more. But then somehow my mind goes back to, but it's so comfortable in here. So I don't know what the problem is. But what I do know is when our kids do force us to go out, it's worth it. And here's the thing. I don't think that my wife and I are that much, that weird uh, in, in a sense of, aren't all of us like that in a certain way when it comes to our lives? Maybe it's not inside and outside for you, but maybe you're comfortable in your family. You're comfortable in our church. You're comfortable in your life, and you don't want to go outside. You don't want to approach people who are on the outside. Maybe it's even other Christians who aren't necessarily part of our church, but it's hard for you to think about them. It's hard for you to connect with them. Maybe it's people who don't know Jesus at all, and it's hard for you, and I'll say this is a hard thing for me. I find it to be so difficult as a pastor to develop relationships with people who aren't Christians because my life is here. Like, this is, you people are my life. And so therefore, that's what I get to know, and it's hard. But for all of us, is there a point in our lives where we are just so comfortable staying inside, doing our own thing, being comfortable in our churches, in our families, and in ourselves, really, that we forget and neglect the outside? Uh, the, the people who are outside of us, the people we don't normally interact with. And the thing I want to say today as we go through this, this passage is I believe that it is important for us to reach outside. It is important for us to go to the outside and we won't regret it. It might be difficult to think about. It might be hard to do. We might be stretched, but it'll be worth it. But there's three ways today that we're going to look at how we can relate to those who are outside, to relate to those who are not in our arm's reach. Before we do that, as we look at that, we need to look at chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, if you would join me. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Continue, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open... T- to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak walk in wisdom towards outsiders making the best use of the time let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person just a few verses but a lot of meaning here And so we're going to look at three ways that we need to interact with the outside. We need to interact with those who are outside of us. And the first thing that we see Paul talks about here, point one, is that we must pray. Verses two through four tell us this. There's no question. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer. That's right where he starts. And you know, we could have a whole sermon talking about what prayer is, how prayer works. We could look at the Lord's Prayer. We could look at different prayers in Scripture. And you know what? That would be a fascinating study. And I would encourage you to do that on your own. I would encourage you to do that maybe in small groups and, and really explore what praying is all about. And I think Paul is getting us to an even greater point, but I'm going to make a few points about prayer. Praying is, is, is coming to God and trusting in His sovereignty and asking Him to work. Not that he depends upon us, but instead we have an opportunity to join him in the work that he is doing. And that is what prayer is. And what Paul says, first of all, is that we must take prayer seriously. We must take prayer seriously. If we're going to relate to those on the outside, we need to be praying for all people. We need to be praying. It starts in our comfort, but we don't just sit here, but we pray for others. And he says, first of all, we continue steadfastly. 
Continue steadfastly in prayer is what he says. What this verse, what these words mean, it's to be strongly committed to prayer. It's to stick to prayer. So coming to God, talking with him, interacting with him through prayer is vitally important to our lives. And if we want to relate to the world around us, it needs to start with our prayers that are going out, but they need to be committed prayers. How many people in your life have you prayed for? Maybe it's an unsaved person that you're looking for Christ to, to come and show himself to them. Or maybe it's somebody who you know is struggling. You've been praying for them. And you know what? After a little while, it kind of just dies down. And before long, you're not praying for that person anymore. You're not praying for that request anymore. You might say you are, but you aren't. it's not at the, the forefront of your mind. That is a real reality, I think, for all of us. That at times, it is hard for this to be to continue steadfastly, to be so committed to it that you stick with prayer, that you continue to pray. And prayer isn't something we just do when it's convenient. That's the whole point here. We need to be praying all the time, and we need to be praying as we are committed to it. As we pray, we also need to be watchful, as Paul says here. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Well, how are we watchful? The idea here is to be on alert, to always be ready and looking to see. And what are we looking to see? We're looking for God to work. If we're praying to God to work in somebody's life, if we're praying to God to work in our lives, if we're praying for a request and yet we just pray for it and then forget that we even prayed it, we're not praying the way God asks us to pray because we need to be watchful. We need to look for God's answers and for his work. We need to look for God's answers and his work. We pray and then we look for the answer. We expect it. We look for it. We are on the watch. We are on alert, looking for what God is going to do in and through our prayers. And God wants us to look for that. Not to just pray it and then forget, but to pray, continue to pray and watch for his answers. And sometimes we need to watch because it might not be the answer that we're ready for. It might not be the answer that we think he's going to give. And yet we need to be watching for every answer that he gives. And the last general principle here in Colossians that Paul gives about prayer, not only should it be serious, not only should we be steadfast in it, not only should we be watchful in it, but we need to do it with thanksgiving. That we need to take prayer seriously by being committed to it, by looking for God's answers, and then with thanksgiving, having gratitude for his sovereignty. This is gratitude and thanksgiving that we give to God even when he doesn't answer prayers the exact way that we wanted him to. When he goes out of his way to do something that hurts or goes out of his way to do something that we don't agree with, we are still thankful because God is working in us. As we watch for his answers, we see those answers. And when we see those answers and when we see him working, our response should always be thankfulness. It's a, it's a condition of our heart. It's an attitude that we have. So we take prayer seriously. We must take prayer seriously. We need to be committed to it. We need to look for God's answers and we need to have gratitude for his sovereign answers that he gives. And those are just some general principles of prayer. I think then Paul moves on because what he's even talking about here, he just got done talking about how you relate to one another and now he's talking about prayer. The two are connected here because the next thing we see, not only should we take prayer seriously, but we must be praying for others. We must be praying for others. This is another general principle that you see here. He's, he says, at the same time, pray also for us. Paul himself, one of the, the apostle that wrote most of the New Testament, 
is asking for Christians in the Colossian church to pray for him and to pray for the people who are with him. Because Paul understands how important it is that people pray for one another. We live in a society today that is very easy for us to pray for ourselves. Even maybe pray for our families, pray for what's going on in our lives. But Paul understands that it's not enough just to pray for ourselves, but we need to pray for others. In Ephesians 6, if you want to turn over, you're welcome to. In Ephesians 6, we're going to look at another passage that talks exactly about this idea of who we should be praying for. Ephesians chapter 6, it's right after the armor of God passage. Some would say it's part of the armor of God, and I would think that would be true. But what we see in chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, is so interesting. And once again, this is Paul writing, and the same ideas are present in Ephesians that are in Colossians, but this is what he says in verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 6. He says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance. So far he's saying the same thing he said in Colossians. And he says, Making supplication for all the saints, and also for me. Paul, once again in Ephesians, makes it very clear who we should be praying for. We need to be praying for all the saints. We need to be praying for all the saints. We need to be praying for other Christians. We need to be praying for other people. It is important that we do this, that we pray for others. And this is what I simply want to say. A Christ-centered life will lead to others-centered prayers. Because if we're truly centered around Christ then our our main priority in life will be Jesus, and the second that is so close to it would be others. Because if we truly love God, we will be loving others. The Bible is full of uh, verses that talk about that. And so as we pray, as we are centered in Christ, we will be others-centered in our prayers. But what do we pray for? So we pray for others. We know that's important. We know that prayer is to be taken seriously. But what do we pray for? How do we pray? And, And there... Once again, we could go through a whole study on this. There's so many different things. And yes, we pray for needs. And yes, we pray for forgiveness. And we pray for God's help. We pray for so many things. And we could do a whole study on that. It would be a fantastic study. But in this passage in Colossians, what is Paul specifically asking for? Well, he he is asking that we pray in light of the gospel. That we pray in light of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That he lived, he died, he rose again so that he could pay the punishment for our sins so that we could have eternal life through faith in him. And and in that, what do we pray for? Well, first of all, he says, pray that God may open a door for us for the word. So we pray for opportunities to share the gospel. So as we're praying for others and even for ourselves, we pray for opportunities. I once had a... uh, uh, a, a guy who I, I listened to a lot is teaching at, at camp, and he would always say, every morning he would wake up and he'd pray like this three-stage prayer. He'd say, God, please uh, help me to share your word today. God, show me an opportunity that I can share your gospel. And Lord, then finally, help me to, to take the opportunity. And so we need to be praying for opportunities for the gospel to go forth. Opportunities for people to share. Paul says, open the door for the word. Pray that God's word will be open, that people will be able to hear God's word. That is a very important thing to pray for. Second thing here, we pray for clarity of the gospel. 
He says that God may open us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, that's the gospel, on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So we pray for opportunities. We also pray that those opportunities would be taken and would be taken well. So as we pray for others and we pray for ourselves, pray for opportunities for the gospel. Pray that people will hear the gospel through us and through others. As we pray for others, pray that they will have opportunities, but also pray that the gospel will be clear. Like I would, I would, I am, I ask you, I actually beg you as a church, like anytime somebody is coming up to preach, anytime somebody is teaching an ABF, anytime we have an opportunity where you know the gospel is going to be shared, please pray. As Paul says, pray for us. Pray for us. Not for our comfort. Notice Paul didn't ask here for them to pray for him to be out of prison. Paul could have said pray for us so that, that we will be released from prison so that we can be free to do ministry wherever we want. No, Paul didn't say that. Paul says, look, I'm in prison for the gospel. Pray that it will continue to go forward. You see, Paul doesn't pray for his comfort. He, he's asking for prayer for the gospel and the furtherance of it. So I would ask you, please pray for us. Pray when you know that the gospel is going to be presented Pray that it'll not only the opportunities will be there, but also pray that it'll be clear. Paul asked for ministry requests. He wanted his ministry to matter. It wasn't about him. And so we pray for one another. We pray for the gospel. That is what is important about our prayers. Like I said, you can pray about so many other things. I'm not saying you can't. You should. You should pray with adoration. You should pray with confession. You should pray with thanksgiving. You should pray with supplication. All of these things. But ultimately, what is your prayer life centered around? And if it's centered around Christ, it'll be about others and the gospel going forward. That is what prayer is all about here in Colossians. And so that's the first way we relate to the outside. Because, see, sometimes we can't talk with somebody. Sometimes we can't meet with somebody. Sometimes it's a Christian that's far away, maybe a missionary that we don't see often. Maybe it's somebody who doesn't know Christ, but we can pray for them. We can pray with them. And that is the first way we can interact with those who are on the outside. But that's kind of easy in one sense. It's hard because we continue to pray and sometimes we get... We get lazy in it, and it's not easy to pray. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is it seems like, okay, well, I can stay comfortable right here and just pray for people, and I'm good. But what we see here in Colossians as we continue to go on is that praying for others and for the spread of the gospel is just the beginning of how we are called to interact with others. We must also practice our new life in front of the world. So we must pray, is point one. Point two is we must practice the gospel, we pray and we practice. Those are the, the things we need to do. So what does Paul say here in Colossians chapter uh, 4, verse 5? Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Walk in wisdom. So the first thing we see Paul say is if we're going to practice the gospel, we must walk wisely. Walk wisely. Walking wisely is something that we are called to do. And if you remember back to the beginning of Colossians, we talked about what wisdom is. And wisdom is taking knowledge that we know of God. Taking that knowledge and applying it to our lives. Whatever that might look like. We know the word of God. We know what he says. We know him. We are learning him. And as we learn about God, then we apply it to our lives. We need to apply godly knowledge. That is, first of all, how we walk wisely. And then Paul says something else here. He says, making the best use of the time. 
Notice he's talking about outsiders here. He says, walk wisely towards outsiders, those who don't know Jesus, those who aren't part of our our family, those who aren't here with us. How do we live? Well, we need to walk wisely, and we need to make the best use of our time. So in other words, we need to not only apply godly knowledge, but we must use every opportunity to show Christ to the world. Every opportunity we have, we should show Jesus to the world. A Christ-centered life is a life that shows Jesus to the world through the way we live, that we make the most of every opportunity we have, that we don't squander opportunities, that we don't ignore opportunities, but we continue to show Christ in every way we possibly can. In our, it goes back to our workplaces, our families, our churches, to the world, to our, wherever we go. That is what we need to do, is make the most of every opportunity as we walk in wisdom. So what does walking in wisdom look like? Uh, that's a good question. We need to go to another passage that I found this week that I think helps us see a little bit of what Paul might even be talking about, because this is also Paul. Next book after Colossians is 1 Thessalonians. If you want to turn over to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be in chapter 4. Chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. 9 through 12. It says this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, as to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Paul is talking here about how we should live in front of outsiders which is what he just got done saying in Colossians, that we need to walk wisely towards outsiders. So this is the exact same thing that Paul is saying here. And by the way, by outsiders, I am not saying somehow that they are less or worse. I am just saying that they don't know Jesus. And except for the grace of God, we'd be in that boat too, and we'd be on the outside. But because God has brought us into the inside, now there are those who still need to be brought in. And so we need to walk wisely. We need to do this in order, as it says here in 1 Thessalonians, to walk properly before outsiders. Well, what does that look like? Well, in the passage we just read, it starts with loving one another. They will know that that you are my disciples by your... You can finish the word. Love. Right, okay. So... Either you weren't watching or... I don't know. Anyway, uh, love. We love one another. That's where it starts. Walking in wisdom is loving one another. That looks different than the world. The world is not used to love. The world is used to seeing hate. The world is used to saying dissension and seeing things that are saying we need to be constantly fighting about something and be disunified about something. Just look at our world for two seconds. Turn on the news for literally five minutes and all you'll see is hate and dissension. And so when love is here and true love where people will put others ahead of themselves is there, people will see Jesus. That is a way we live wisely. The next one it says here is we need to live quietly. Another way you could say quietly is peacefully. Same idea there. So it says we love one another, and then it says later on in this passage, it says to aspire to live quietly. All right, 
So we live peacefully and quietly. We're not making a big scene and, and charging ahead and making big debates out of everything and, and being belligerent. That's not what we're called to do as Christians, to walk wisely. Listen, there are a lot of people out there that think the answer to, uh, to, the answer to seeing people know Jesus is to just beat them over the head and just to be complete and utter jerks about it. I'm sorry for the use of the word if you don't like the word jerk, but that's what they try to do. And that is not what we're called to do as Christians. That we live quietly, peacefully. That we show Christ's love through peace. And that is something we need to do to live wisely. The next one talks about this interesting thing here. It says to mind your own affairs. Basically what Paul says is mind your own business. So we live quietly and we mind our own business. Uh, in other words, now this is not saying that if you see somebody that needs Christ that you don't tell them about Christ. What this means is you're not living a life in which you are nosy, that you are trying to get involved in everybody's life and trying to be the one to fix things. Because listen, you can't fix things, only Christ can. So you bring the message of Christ, but you don't do it in an offensive way, where that you're meddling, whether you're getting into others' lives, whether that's somebody in church or whether that's somebody on the outside, specifically talking about outsiders here. You show them love, you show them peace, you don't meddle in their business. And try to undercut them. That's not wise. They're not going to listen. The next thing it says here in this passage, not only did we live quietly and mind our own affairs, it says to work with our hands. That we work well. That we work well. That is a testimony of Christ to the world around us. When we work well, when we work with our hands, when whatever we do for work, that we do it with a good attitude. Kind of goes back to what we saw here earlier on in chapters, at the end of chapter three and how we relate to slaves and masters and all of that. The way we work well shows Christ to others. And finally, the last thing we see says, be dependent on no one. This basically comes down to this, that we are not exploiting others. That we are not exploiting others. To the point where what's happening in the church at Thessalonica, what it seems to be happening as you look at the context, is that some people, because you know the early church, they came together, they kind of shared everything. Some people thought, all right, cool, we're sharing everything, so I'll let them share everything, and I'll just use their stuff. You know, what's mine is mine, and what's yours is mine type of attitude. And that's what they had. And there was people that were saying, look, uh, other people can do the work, and I can reap the benefit. That is not a wise way to live in front of outsiders. If people see that attitude, that we are, we are really, what we're saying is don't be a moocher, right? Everybody knows that person who's a moocher. They, wanna, they always want something, and they're always trying to find a way to get something without giving anything. That's what we need to stay away from. That's not walking wisely. So take these things for what they're worth as we look at 1 Thessalonians 4. We need to love one another. We need to live quietly. We need to mind our own business. We need to work well. And we need to not exploit others. Those are some basic ways that we can live in wisdom towards those on the outside. So we need to live Christ. We need to live the gospel, practice the gospel. But praying for others in the gospel and then also practicing our new life is not all we need to do. You see, a lot of people think if I live the right life, then people will see Jesus and then it's all I need to worry about. Well, there's more to it. We also need to be proclaiming the gospel. We need to pray, we need to practice the gospel, and we need to proclaim the gospel. Verse 6, here in, in Colossians. Verse 6, chapter 4 in Colossians, says this. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
So we must proclaim the gospel. We see that in verse 6. And what we see, first of all, is that our speech to others must be gracious. Our speech to others must be gracious. As he continues to talk about how we relate to outsiders, we not only need to live for Christ, but we need to speak for Christ. Remember the whole, uh, the whole theme of Colossians. It's all about Christ. And so the way we speak has to be about him. And that starts with our speech being gracious. Our speech to others should be gracious. What does gracious mean? Well, it's to be full of love, kindness. Ultimately, it's speaking what is beneficial. It's benefiting one another. It's benefiting others. When you speak, you benefit them. When you speak, you have love and kindness. But I also think that when Paul says our speech needs to be gracious, it's not just about the attitude of our speech, but it's also about the subject of our speech that we point people to the grace of Jesus Christ, that we point people to the love, kindness, and grace of Jesus. As we speak graciously, it'll be done in an attitude of love, but it'll also point towards Christ. And then he says, not only should it be gracious, but our speech to others should be wise. Our speech to others should be wise. You say, where do you see that? Well, it says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. Seasoned with salt. Interesting phrase here. We don't use it very often. I found this this week, and I thought this was very interesting. I didn't know this. Uh, When you hear that phrase, a lot of us go back to, oh, we're salt of the earth, and therefore we preserve, and we do all these different... There's lots of different lists of what salt does, right? Um, Don't think that's actually what Paul is getting to here. If you look at this phrase, it was used very commonly uh, in Greek culture. This phrase was a very common phrase phrase to use that you would speak seasoned with salt and and what they meant with this was that you spoke with wit like so literally what this means seasoned with salt it's the greek phrase for wit to speak with wit now i am not talking about the witty that ben palmer is okay um (laughs) Love is witty. Okay, that's great. All right, that's awesome. Uh, some of you have really great wit, right? And you can come up with a, with a joke just like that. And no matter what situation, you can find a way to make it funny. Yeah, that is the way we use the word wit. But really what wit means is that you speak in a timely manner. Think about that with humor. If you think about it, like a well-timed joke is funny, but a joke that's timed awfully is not funny at all, right? I mean, you've been around one of those jokes, like somebody says something like, okay, wrong time, wrong place. Would be funny somewhere else and at a different time, but right now it's not funny. Uh, I'm sure that it's happened to Ben before, you know. <laughs> Never with him, actually. He's always right on time. But, but that is what wit is all about, right? It's about timely speech. And so how does that apply to the way we talk to outsiders? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that we know what to say, when to say it. That we don't just vomit our words all over everybody all the time. Okay, but that we know what we're saying and why we're saying it and when we are saying it. That is wise speech. So we are gracious and we show the grace of Christ, but let's also keep in mind that it needs to be timed well. That we just don't blurt everything out because that's not wise. And so Paul says we need to proclaim the gospel by being gracious with our words, being wise with our words, and also finally that our speech should be informed. Our speech should be informed. So not only do we see it gracious, but also wise. But now we see, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's about being informed. It's about being prepared. Many of you know the passage that we're going to go to here in 1 Peter. But if you want to turn over with me to 1 Peter, 
uh, we're going to see this idea come out again of, are we ready to answer? That's the whole point here in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, we're going to look at this very popular passage, and yet I think it's vital to what we're talking about today here in Colossians. 3, 15, and 16. So we need to be ready to answer others. We need to be ready to answer others. And we see that here in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16. And here we read this. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we are ready to answer others. Colossians says that. Peter says that. Uh, We must answer for our hope in Jesus. This is not saying that we have an answer to every single question that is ever going to be asked of us. We are human. We are finite. We're not going to be able to understand everything, and we won't even understand everything about God. But what we can answer for is the hope that we have in Christ. And what is that hope? The hope is the gospel. The hope is Jesus. The hope is what he has done. The hope is who he is. It is the gospel of Jesus. And so therefore, we should be prepared. We should be informed. We should be ready to talk the gospel, to speak the gospel. When people are trying to figure out why we have hope in this context in Peter, it's about when you are being persecuted and people see that you're not responding the way that they think you should. It's that hope that we have in Jesus and in the gospel. And so do we answer for our hope? We need to be ready for that. But going back to what we just talked about with making sure that we are speaking graciously and wisely, Peter also says this here where it says, do this with gentleness and respect. As we answer the gospel, as we give the gospel, we do it gently and respectfully. It goes back to what we already talked about. I won't rehash all of it, but how we relate the gospel to people is important. You know, I've heard so many people say, you know what, I'm going to preach the gospel, and if they're offended, well, then that's, that's fine with me because the gospel's offensive. Yes, it's true. The gospel is offensive because it says that you can't do anything about your sin, only God can, and you need to give up your rights to live with him live for him. That is what the gospel is after you consider all that Jesus did. And so that is offensive, but people should not be offended by the way we present it. If they're going to be offended, it needs to be by the word of God alone, by the fact that we have shared it graciously, we have shared it wisely, we have shared it gently, and we have shared it respectfully with others. And we have shared the gospel in those ways. If they're still offended, then that's not on us because they're offended by the message. But let's not confuse people being offended over the message with people being offended because of the messenger. And we need to be very careful about how we speak. And so today we've looked at several things, that our new life in Christ will lead us to have a committed life of prayer. Uh, that a committed life of prayer, not only for others, but for the gospel itself. We also looked at the fact that we need to be committed to practicing the gospel, practicing Christ, showing Christ to the world through the way we live. But it doesn't just stop with the way we live. This is not just about um, lifestyle evangelism, okay? There's, they go hand in hand. We live the gospel and then we speak the gospel. We pray, we practice, and we proclaim. That's what we need to do with the gospel. It is in these ways that we can have a positive impact on the world outside of us. If we want to have an impact on the world that is outside of our walls, if we want to go outside where it's uncomfortable, and if we want to see a difference made, it's going to be bringing Jesus to them. 
It's going to be bringing Jesus to the outside, and we do that through these ways, through prayer, through practice, and through proclaiming. And when we do those things, we will see that God can work in the hearts and minds of those people we're praying for. God can work in the minds and hearts of those people that we're living in front of, and God can work in the hearts and minds of those people who we are, are speaking to. It is important that we relate not only to those who are close, but also to those who are far. And so my encouragement to all of us is find ways to do these things. Be committed to prayer. Practice the gospel in your life. If you're not living it out, nobody's going to listen to what you have to say. And then finally, proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the hope in gentleness and respect with wisdom and with graciousness. So here's a few questions to ask before we transition into communion. First question I ask every week, and I will not stop asking this question, is this. Have you come to Jesus and asked him to be the center of your life? Have you, in the very first sense, have you come to know Jesus as your Savior? Or are you sitting here today and you don't know Jesus? And everything we've just talked about, you don't understand. You don't care. You don't get. Well, it's because you don't know Jesus. You are one of those who, what the Bible would say, is on the outside. Like I said, that's not to be offensive. But we want you to be... Go to come in. <laughs> That's what we want. We want you to come in and be with us and be with Christ. That is the gospel. The fact that Jesus lived a perfect life while he was here on the earth. That we've all sinned and we've all done things that have gone against God's will and we've said, God, I'm going to do things my way and not yours. And when we've done that, we've sinned and we deserve punishment in hell forever and to be separated from him because he can't be around anything that isn't perfect. And so we, well, we're destined towards separation from him in hell and yet he sent Jesus Christ to come to this earth to live that perfect life we just talked about. To, to show us that yes, he can be the perfect lamb, the one that can be sacrificed as he dies on the cross, that he can take our sins on himself. That's what we're about to talk about as we go into communion. That Jesus died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And his blood was shed so that we could be forgiven of our sin and our relationship with God could be mended. And so then Jesus could become the center of our life as he rose again and proved that sin and death have nothing on him. That he indeed is God and that he needs to be the center of our lives. And so that's the gospel. It's Jesus died, Jesus rose again, Jesus is waiting for you to come to him in faith, to believe in him and call out to him. That's what the gospel is. And if you have not done that, please, today, don't wait any longer. Come to Christ. Ask him to be the center. A couple other questions for the rest of us here. Maybe you're on the inside, but does your prayer reflect the life that you now have in Christ? Does the way you pray really reflect your new life in Christ? Are you committed to prayer for others? Are you committed to pray for the gospel? Does your practice reflect a new life in Christ? Is the way you live showing Christ to the world around you? And only you can answer that question. I would encourage you as we go to communion to consider that. Consider it. Is your life reflecting Jesus? And finally, does your speech proclaim the new life in Christ? Or are you too busy talking about everything else but not what's truly important, that is Jesus Christ and his gospel? It's easy to talk about other things. It's easy to talk about the weather. It's easy to talk about sports. It's easy to talk about uh, interests. It's easy to talk about all these things. But are we talking about what really matters? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the questions you all have to ask. We, we all have to ask. Is, are these things true in our lives? So as we go to communion, which I'll be going 
As we go to communion, I want you to consider these things. Consider these questions. Consider if Jesus is your Savior. Consider if your prayer, your practice, and your speech are proclaiming what is true of Christ. Are you representing Christ in all of these ways? And if you're not, repent. Ask God to help you. He'll give you the strength to do it. So as we go to communion, I would ask the four that I asked to come up to, to serve with me to come up. That would be great. And the music team, please make your way up. This is a con- this, see, communion is not like a separate part of the service. Like I know a lot of us look at it that way. Like, all right, we had the sermon, we had the worship, now it's time for communion. And that is true, it is time for communion. But I want you to look at communion today as maybe a little bit more. An extension of our worship. An extension of God's word. An extension of what we just heard about in Colossians. That Christ is the center. He's asking you to make him the center. He's already there, but he just wants you to acknowledge it. And so as we come to this table, what we literally are doing as we come to this table is we are remembering his death for us. We're remembering that he gave his body on the cross to be broken for us. We're remembering that he shed his blood to forgive us of our sins. And all of these things we need to remember and we have the opportunity now to remember together. And at some point in the next month, we're going to have a whole sermon that's going to talk about communion because I think we need to understand what this is all about. But today as we take communion, let's contemplate and meditate on the fact that Jesus is the center. Let's acknowledge him as such. With that, we're going to, hand, we're going to pass out the bread to start as we remember the body of Christ that was broken for us. I would ask Charlie, would you mind saying a prayer before we pass it out? As we close this morning, what we've been talking about in Colossians is also reflected in the book of Titus. And in Titus, it talks about, uh, it talks about how older women are to treat younger women and older men to younger men. And it talks about the workplace. And it talks about how we maintain a Christ-centered life. And he says here in, in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce godliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And then it says in chapter 3, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people. And I think as Titus tells us, as, as Paul tells us in Titus, and as he told us in Colossians, and as God tells us time and time again in his word, look to Jesus and represent him well. Thank you. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.